0: Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. James teaches that faith without works is dead. He acknowledges that there can be a big difference between what we say we believe and how we actually live, and he argues that how we actually live shows what we really believe. After Jehu had finished his bloody revolution, his dynasty lasted for another four kings, and in this lesson, we're going to look at the first two kings, Jehoahaz and Joash, also known as Jehoash. Uh, The lives of these two kings could really be summed up as faltering faith, and in this lesson we're going to do a dive into the theme of what it looks like to believe God, but not enough. I'm joined, as always, by Matt Barfield and Andy Montgomery. Hey there. Why, hello. And uh, we'll be talking about these two kings here. Uh, Let's go ahead and dive in. We'll start off with Jehoahaz, and uh, I'll just kind of summarize the story of Jehoahaz uh, quickly for us, but... uh, Jehoahaz comes to the throne after uh, Jehu had reigned, and he reigns for 17 years, so kind of a respectable middle-of-the-line reign. Uh, It's not seven days of Zimri, but it's also not a 52-year reign of uh, some of the other kings that we've seen. Um, And he does, we're told right away, verse 2, he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Let's pause there for a second. What is the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat? Because that comes up over and over again in the book of Kings.
1: This is worshiping God the wrong way, right? This is, yeah. this is setting up another place, another, another method, um, having the calves there in a different location. So people don't go to Jerusalem and get their hearts drawn back to the Southern kingdom. Uh, this is a practical, uh, adjustment for uh, a, a spiritual reality and, um, it's disastrous for Israel.
2: And then he's repeated multiple, multiple times. Like <clears throat> that little phrase you even saw here, he followed after the sins of Jeroboam, um, was is, is repeated throughout these books. I mean, it's another Bible study tool that you see it coming up, but it, you're right to ask the question to bring us back to him because um, he's frequently referred to, especially with the kings of Israel.
0: Yeah, and we're going to see even in this story, he shows up um, at the beginning of the story and he shows up at the end of the story, Jeroboam, son of Nebat. So that's really, really important. I think <clears throat> for a lot of people you just kind of read over that and, okay, what's going on there? I don't know. I'll come back to that later. But Really, I think having a grasp on what this means, uh, no king is said uh, to have turned from the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which means Jeroboam sets up his golden calves and they are never pulled down until the northern kingdom is done away with. And that, <clears throat> I think that helps us as we think through the other kings, uh, just to realize this is something that's always
1: in the background. I don't know. Any, any thoughts on that guys? Well, you know, it's, it's one of those, this well-known phrases. I don't think it comes from this, but you have the sacred cows. You have those things that we just have to have. (laughs) It's just the way it is. And if you, if you threaten to do something that's going to go around that, there's a huge defensive mechanism. And I think for the Northern tribes, these sacred cows become the the default for them. And, and you can't go any other way because that means it's going to, uh, unravel their kingdom they're gonna go back to judah it's going to be drawn back to the temple into worshiping god that way and for us now i guess if we can go to application maybe too fast but um you know we we have these things and we think uh well we're, we're doing what's right we're, we're worshiping god but if we have sacred cows if we have these structures that we have to have whether they're god's way or not uh that that needs to be analyzed and be sacrificed those sacred cows yeah. need to go there's two levels
2: where i'm thinking at this there's uh, one, obviously, on the side of Jeroboam himself, and then there's the uh, those who follow him later. On Jeroboam's side, it only takes one person to be the trendsetter um, in a good or a bad way. And more often than not, the bad way is the one that sticks. <laughs> and so uh, Jeroboam, <clears throat> it's really sad that not only did he make the mistakes that he made, um, that he made the sinful – it's probably – more fair to say simple decisions, not just simple mistakes. The simple decisions that he made are repeated by so many others. And so that's a question we always have to ask ourselves is when we're making a decision, is this going to be one that's repeated, especially when we're in uh, positions of influence uh, to do so? The other thing is it's sad that it's so easy to become the product of a system. Um, mm-hmm. Like it, it, So many of these kings uh, just decide to go with that flow. And uh, it takes, as we're, we're going to look at it, it, takes a lot of faith to be the one who breaks out of a sinful System. Um, And sometimes what we need is somebody who will shake up the norm, and people don't like that. And sometimes we can even take a wrong step in stepping out of the norm. Sometimes we're in a good system that we do that. But I think in this story, um, it, it's clear that there were people who had to step out of the system and weren't willing to do so because it was easier to go with the flow. Um, I'm not going to be that guy that destroys what Jeroboam made so long ago. We'll follow God. We'll do
1: it our way. We'll ignore it, but we're not going to get rid of it. Well, you, sure, you certainly can't look at all that God put into the temple, all that detail that he gave to Solomon, all those the exactitude of every measurement and every uh, system and and. and um, sacrificial system that they put in place there, and think, "Oh, we can we can improve on that. We mm. can we can do something a little bit different, or a little bit better, and still be okay." That's exactly. Yeah. So if it's God's system, right. we shouldn't
2: be trying yeah. to break it at all. But if it's For if real. it's a man made system that we know is flawed, yeah. um, and we know that God wants to step out of it, we shouldn't be afraid to break out of that. And it's hard a, to
1: a good example of that would be the Reformation. You know, people that say, "Hey, these yeah. man made things have taken us away from what God clearly said in His Word." we're done with that and it was hard and they, they adjusted uh, through great difficulty and the testimony of Baptists throughout history who have said, we're not going to do that. We're going to follow God's word. That's a great example of, of doing that exact thing. We should follow in those steps. Makes me think um, you talked about the, the courage to be the one to step out and to
0: challenge the system. I think of William Carey and there's a little bit of debate about whether or not this was an actual quote, but it said that in one of his meetings uh, he was talking about the burden that the Lord had put on his heart to take the gospel to the heathen and, um, it is said that there was an old minister who said, Young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without your help or mine. And um you know, that was certainly you, you think about somebody who's who's coming to this this church that's just used to, you know, we share the gospel with our neighbors perhaps, but we go to church and, you know, we're we're this is the good thing that we do. And somebody who comes and just kind of throws a stick of dynamite in that and says, Yeah, but there's people all across the world who need the gospel. We need to start sending people to them. And just how how radically countercultural and how really scary it was probably at, at the time to realize, well, we haven't been doing this for for generations. We've just kind of been sitting here and, you know, that we've been good. And for someone to come along and say, no, this, this system that we've, that we've got, it's incomplete. It's not a one-to-one correspondence with what's going on with Jeroboam. But I, I do think of the courage that it took for someone to stand up sure. and be that first one.
2: Some of, our, some of the greatest leaders are the ones who are willing to be different the cause of christ and be okay with that so you had carrie at the same time judson had to basically create his own missionary society and then while he's on the ship on his way over he realizes he's a baptist as he studies god's word and he breaks from the missionary society that he created like not only did he step out of the system then he stepped out of his own system and uh another example i was just recently reading about moody and i don't trying to take us too far on a rabbit trail here, but even with him, like he came to Chicago and the Sunday schools were missing a lot of really important kids, uh, you know, kids in what they called hell's kitchen in Chicago. And so, uh, even though they didn't have a Sunday school system set up for those, he created it. He stepped out. He was different. It wasn't the norm. In fact, a lot of people thought he was doing kind of a uh, work that he didn't need to be doing. And he changed the lives of thousands of kids in well, that th- ministry.
1: Yeah. I think. You know, these are all great examples, and that, that Carrie thing really sticks with me because the, the argument was based on a very firm view of what Christendom was. And we don't hold that, you don't hear that much today, uh, the Christian world or, mm-hmm. or this, this Western empire. Sort of those things have gone aside in our thinking. But those people that were saying, hey, when God wants to reach the heathen, he'll do it without you or my, me, um, they, they were thinking of themselves as a separate entity from the rest of humanity because they were Christendom. And he's saying to them, and he proves it in his writing of that pamphlet that he put out, this very famous, this call uh, to go out and reach all nations. He says the command of Christ is to go to every, na- every ethnos, every people group. And then he lists every known country of, of his day if you see the document, it's pretty awesome to think he mm. did that without Google or anything like that. <laughs> mm. And he writes down, he goes to ship captains, he, he goes to government officials, he gets all, these, all this information. It has population, it has the religion, it has whether they have any churches there or any Bible translated in those languages. It's very extensive, the work he did in that very early stage, because he took seriously... The basic command, go to every ethnos. And I think when you look at things like a golden calf or, or these alternative ways of uh, of worship that Jeroboam came up with and that these kings of the north followed, and the things that we're facing today, we got to be able to go back to Scripture and say, can I show this with Scripture? And we need that often to go back and refresh that and say, can I relate this to Scripture? Am I following faith that came by the Word of God, hearing the Word of God? Yeah.
0: And so I think when we think about these kings, we have to realize... You know, even as we go back, they're worshiping these golden calves all throughout. So you think of Jehu. Jehu is this classic example of somebody who's zealous for the cause of the Lord, and he's going out and he is wiping out all the enemies. Uh, at one point, he in this is kind of an interesting episode. I think that there's probably some political advantage to him in doing this, but he finds this guy named Jehonadab, the son of Recab, um, and he pulls him up into his chariot and he says to him in verse uh, 16 of Second Kings chapter 10, he says, "Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord." You know, that, that's Yahweh. That's the, the, in Hebrew, that's Yahweh, Jehovah. Come see my zeal for Jehovah, for Yahweh. So they made him ride in his chariot. And when he came to Samaria, he slew all that remained unto Ahab in Samaria. And you read a statement like that and you're like, man, this guy's really bought on. And then you read at the end of his life, but he did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam. You're like, what's the sin of Jeroboam? Well, he was zealous for the Lord, but he was still worshiping the golden calves in Dan and Bethel. And so um, I think it's helpful as we're reading these stories just to have that in the back of our minds because... Uh, as we're going to see both of these kings continue in that sin and yet uh it's it gets complicated because they they seek the lord's help and they both get it and so how do we and we'll talk about that a little bit more uh how do we process that that there are these people who are worshiping golden calves that are supposed to represent the lord in direct contradiction to the second command and yet god god helps them so uh let's uh well actually let's just go ahead and, and talk about that we'll I'll just read 2 Kings 13, just a couple of these verses here. It says, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he delivered him into the hand of Hazael, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, all their days. And Jehoahaz besought the Lord, and the Lord hearkened unto him, for he saw the oppression of Israel, because the king of Syria oppressed them. And the Lord gave Israel a savior, so that they went out from under the hand of the Syrians, and the children of Israel dwelt in their tents as before times. Nevertheless, they departed not from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, who made Israel to sin, but walked therein, and there remained the grove also in Samaria. So how do, we, how do we process this? We have a king who continues in his sin and yet calls out to God for
2: mercy and is shown mercy. I think we're given an answer for why God did that near the end of the chapter. Um, in verse 23 of second Kings 13, and the Lord was gracious unto them and had compassion on them and had respect unto them. And we're thinking, why? Like, if you just pause right there for a second, and you think of these pagan Kings, you're like, why would God do that? And he answers it because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them. Neither cast he them from the, his presence as yet. And so, I think this is probably part of where you're hoping to get here and that God was keeping his promises to Israel. He wasn't going to let Israel be completely destroyed. He had promised that to many of his faithful ones in the past, like Abraham. And and so uh, those covenants are the basis of God keeping Israel alive because we look through Israel's history, and there's quite a few times where we think, why have they not been wiped out yet? Um but it's, they were God's chosen people, and he had a purpose and still has a purpose uh, for them. So he was, we serve a God who's a promise-keeping God. Even in the midst of our own unfaithfulness, uh, he will always abide faithful.
1: Well, he's, gonna, he's going to hold to the word that he gave that's always going to be accomplished. And so here, the actions of these people in their time isn't what keeps them going. It's, it's what those did before them and that God promised before them. And so these things are going to be dealt with in a different way, right? If, if God dealt with them after what they deserved at that time, then it would have resulted in God not keeping the covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and and Jacob. So mm-hmm. so so God says, no, I'm going to keep that. I'm going to deal with this a different way uh, at a later time or with a different set of, of judgment. So I, I think one of the things I think about contemporaneously for us is how— it, we're very careful as Americans to say there, there are no cultural Christians. You can't get your, your grandparent's salvation. That's, that doesn't save you. You can't go to heaven on the coattails of anyone else. And that's absolutely true. But there are distinct blessings we get because people before us followed God. Mm-hmm. And in this country, there are things that are we are still benefiting from people's faith that came before us. And God is keeping those promises to those people who did who did right and they're they're gone to glory they're on uh they're around his throne and we're still the beneficiaries to some extent we are responsible and i think as a as a a sort of a steward of those blessings you want to be somebody who who contributes to that right not somebody who has to keep deducting from the account you know the the, that's an interesting way the kid who's constantly draining the uh the trust fund you want to be the one who's no my family's better off my my group's better off because i'm investing in them too
2: yeah, that's a great application, Matt. And a lot of other passages mentioned. Even so, in this one, it mentioned the promise to Abraham. Other times, uh, God's word refers to David as well. God remembered what David had done, and so he, you know, he stayed faithful to Israel, even amidst that. But that's a great application.
0: I think too, uh, along those lines, you know, ultimately we could apply that to Christ and say that we are blessed because of God's faithfulness to Christ right. and to rescue and redeem those who have faith in Him. It reminds me of uh, this is. Kind of interesting, but actually God's uh, first message to Isaac in Genesis 26. Isaac is kind of a silent figure um, in the in the Pentateuch. There's not a whole lot about Isaac. There's a lot about Abraham. There's a lot about Jacob. Isaac almost, almost gets skipped over. There's a couple of things there. But in Genesis 26, God comes to him and he says uh, in verse 4, And I will make thy seed to multiply as the stars of heaven, and will give unto thy seed all these countries. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because... That Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws, and I, you know, you just think about Isaac, man, what a relief that must have been. Like, uh, all right, Isaac, I've promised your dad that I'm going to bless you, and y- you realize that there's really nothing that Isaac can do at that point to mess it up, yeah. because it's not it's not writing on him, it's not writing on his obedience, it's writing on Abraham's obedience, and Abraham's obedience is complete. And so, in a similar way. There's nothing I can ultimately do to mess up my salvation because my salvation, my position is resting on Christ, and Christ's obedience is complete, and there's nothing I can do uh, to ultimately mess that up. It's just kind of an interesting thought when we think about the faithfulness of God. God is faithful to Christ, and by some miracle of grace, I get to get in on
1: that. And when you think about the Hebrews chapter 11, the Abraham section is quite extensive. It's like 13 verses in which Yeah, Abraham does this by faith and that by faith— and Isaac's inclusion is, by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. <laughs> Way to go. <laughs> okay. Powerful example. Uh, well, I mean, it's a prophecy, right? So he, yeah. he he's, he's claiming the promises for himself. Perfect. That's the connection we need from him. But, I mean, it kind of illustrates what you're saying. Like, Abraham really was the one that was bringing in these blessings for everybody.
0: So, yeah, I think that's definitely one of the factors here is that um, there's God has made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so he shows mercy uh, on that account. I do also wonder, and we talked about this a little bit in my group. I'm curious what you guys think. I think that God sometimes shows mercy when there's—I'm trying to think how exactly to put this. When when sins are done in ignorance, you know, um, and we see that with with Paul. Paul said, "You know, I persecuted the church. Nevertheless, I was shown mercy because I did it in ignorance." Um, and I do wonder with this if God. You know, you have these kings who are worshiping at Dan and Bethel, or at the very least are permitting Dan and Bethel to keep going on, and yet God listens to them. And the only way I can square that is that God in his mercy, uh, number one is being faithful to the covenant, but number two is, is taking into account what they were handed um, and, and recognizing they should not be doing that at the same time, their father and their grandfather and their great-grandfather before them, this is all that they've known. Um, I don't know. What, what do you guys think about that?
1: Well, I think that's also with Paul in when he's talking of others in Acts 17, where he says, "In the times of your ignorance, God winked at." Hmm. You know, and I I read that, and I'm hmm. like, "My God takes sin lightly," and no, that's not true. Sin is always sin, and sin is always unacceptable to God. Uh, but I think it's I think it's similar to what you're saying. He's taking into account all that's going on, realizing what it's about to come with the gospel being presented to them, and and then. You know, it's a different scenario now that they have this hmm. this gospel truth. It's
2: an interesting point that you bring up, Ben, because, I mean, it is true that in God's word there are levels of accountability that we're responsible for. You know, unto whom much is given, of him shall much more be required. And of him who's given much, they shall ask the more. Um, so, certainly, there are those levels of accountability. Sometimes, even in even in punishment, there's extra levels of accountability Um I, I I'd have to think on that thought a little bit more, but it is it is an interesting point to make here that they were born into a world where they were completely surrounded by this overt worldliness, I guess, this worship of it, um, and the fact that they stepped out of that to even ask God for help, I suppose, can seem almost miraculous from that pagan of a king and from someone who came from that p- political system. But so I suppose you're right. I, I, there probably is a level of accountability that God was. Uh, merciful uh, f- to them because of that. But. And, I, and I don't say
0: that to say, you know, their sin didn't matter or that they weren't judged for. it. In right. fact, in some ways it's almost more dangerous. God God shows them patience, but the problem continues to fester. The problem doesn't go away. You know, with Paul, he repents and is shown forgiveness. Uh, with Israel, they're given more chances and more chances, and they don't repent. Yeah. And the nation as a whole just deteriorates. When When we look at the end of Israel, I think I've mentioned this before. You've got like six kings in 30 years. I mean, it's just a revolving door, and the country. You read Hosea, you realize this country, the morality of it has totally and completely deteriorated and
2: disintegrated. Um, Right, a total spiritual moral decline, and it just kept getting worse with each generation. And Jesus talks about the
1: kind of responsibility that those blessings have on us. When you, you know, an absence of them is gives space or mercy. When He says, uh, "If the great works that have been done in you had been done Mm -hmm. in." Those yeah. cities, you know, those those pagan cities or Gentile cities, Tyre and Sidon, they would remain, you know, that, or Sodom and Gomorrah would have remained. You know, Tyre and Sidon, mm-hmm. they would have repented a long time ago. You guys are blowing it. you got far more. So I think, you know, in to your point, here Israel is the Tyre and Sidon. Here Israel is the place that's that's gone. And so God's giving them space to you know. to turn. And,
0: and I think as we, as we apply that to our lives, as I've applied that to my life, there's there's things again talking about the structures that we have in place. Things that it can be tempting to be like, well, God doesn't seem to be um, God doesn't seem to be really upset about X Y Z. You know, I'm doing it. Things seem to be working well, um, and yet not realizing that yes, God may be showing mercy, God may be understanding, but that doesn't mean that it's not sin. That doesn't mean that it's not wrong, and that doesn't mean that um, it will destroy and disintegrate. My family, my church, if I allow that to continue. And so just for me, as I've thought through this personally, to realize I've got to, like we said earlier, constantly be bringing things back to Scripture, back to Scripture, back to Scripture, and realizing um, that uh, we've got to hold things up to God's Word and not just ask pragmatically, okay, I'm doing this, is anything bad happening? Uh, not realizing that maybe some of these decisions are going to have consequences 10, 20, 30, 40 years down the road. And yes, God is still going to accept my worship today, and he's still going to uh, bless me today. But uh, this thing that I'm doing, if it's against God, if it's against his word, there will be consequences down the line. Like I can't mm-hmm. keep doing it perpetually and it be all right.
1: I heard a classic Tozer sermon, uh, mm-hmm. the old audio of him uh, preaching, and he, he talked about people who think they're doing something and getting away with it. He says, "You, you, some of you people have... Uh, income taxes and you're shaving, you're, you're, you're claiming things that really shouldn't be claimed. And you're doing this and you think, you know, it's funny. It's fun. I, I'm getting away with something. He said, you're not getting away with anything. He mm. said, your soul's leaking. Hmm. And, uh, mm. you know, you're, <laughs> that's quite a powerful thing to say. And it'd be, it'd be terrible to think of, um, us losing our ministry opportunities, the candlestick going somewhere else because yeah. we weren't you know responding correctly to the chastening, to the call to repent to the, to the command to come back to what the Lord has called us to, which is the life of Christ here on this earth.
2: It might be a worthwhile uh, thing for us to do to just step back sometimes and look at the level of investment we've had in our own lives. You know, look at those who have taught us God's word. Look at the opportunities we've had and step back. And in light of all the things we've been given, what are we doing with it? Right. Um, you know, so many of us have grown up with such great Christian influences, both family wise and in our churches and in the you know so we have a lot more ability to sit down and open God's word and understand what it's talking about. We have more of a framework to work from um, than someone who has been even newly saved and is learning all that for the first time. So there's yeah, there's a level of accountability that we definitely should remind ourselves of and maybe insert a little bit of the fear of the Lord in our hearts. Amen. Well, um, we were not planning
0: on taking that much time talking through Jehoahaz, but that was a, I, I felt like that was a really helpful conversation. And, um, again, themes that are coming up repeatedly, especially Jeroboam, so I felt like that was good to touch on. Uh, as we were talking about this before, we were all really excited to talk about Joash. <laughs> and so let's go ahead and talk about Joash totally. in, the, in the last few minutes that we have. This is a cool story. I've preached from this story. I know Matt said that he's preached from this story. It's a, it's a really gripping illustration of somebody who believes God – kind of, and uh, what happens when we believe God, kind of. So, I do a lot of the talking. Matt, you said you've preached to this. Why don't you give us a brief rundown of the story?
1: Well, in this situation, the king comes in to Elisha, who's dying, and uh, you know expresses his remorse that that's happening and, and sees the greatness of Israel, the, the light of Israel fading to a certain degree. And Elisha turns it back to him and, and wants him to take a step of faith. And, and you know... A lot we can say about this, but so, so the king goes out and, and uh, Elisha says, This is the bow of God's deliverance from Syria, shoot! And he shoots, and uh, Elisha pronounces that, that blessing. And then he says, Now, now, hit the ground, shoot the ground. And he shoots three times and he stops. And Elisha gets very, very upset with him. And they said, You should have smitten the ground five or six times, whatever the number was, uh, more times than what you did, because then you would have defeated Syria until you consumed them. But now you only defeat them three times,
0: yeah. So as we look at that story and we just kind of uh, process what's going on there, why does Elisha get so upset at Joash?
2: So I think your notes were helpful in this way. I think there's a somewhat of an understanding that he knew when he was shooting into the ground that he was, that it was a metaphor to some extent. Like he knew when he was shooting against the ground that he was um, going, it, it was, it was the level of. Punishment That was going to be laid out against their enemies. Like, I think he understood that or else Elisha might not, would not have gotten that upset at him for it. Um, and I guess really, as I'm looking at it and thinking about it, and especially in the context of discussion of where's this king's faith, um, I think we all have a line where we think that God could, you know, God can do it up to this. And we don't always trust God to step past that line, like yeah. the the concept of God being able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ever ask or think. Now, sometimes we just don't even ask and we forget to even put that line there, but sometimes it just, it, it's almost subconsciously, we have a line that we think it'd be really cool if God did this, but I don't imagine he's going to go further than that. And God wants us to wish greatly of him. Um, the song come my soul with every care. I love that song. It says come my soul with every care. Jesus loves to answer prayer. He himself bids you to pray and will never turn away. It says, you are coming to a King, large Large petitions petitions with you bring That's awesome. for his grace and power, such none can ever ask too much. That's awesome. And, uh, and sometimes we're just not willing to ask too much of God.
1: I think there's a little bit of a switch here. I, I agree with everything you said there. And it's, that is a very powerful and practical thing. I think the the king comes in, and I'm not sure if he's sincere when he says, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and the horsemen thereof. Maybe he is, maybe he's just grandstanding. I don't know about that. Mm. But Elisha says, You take the bow. Right? Elisha's in his bed. So Elisha puts that he says, You're the you're the focal port of focal point, the king says, You're the focal point of Israel's power. And he goes, Oh, here, take the artillery. Take the bow. Right? That's the Mm -hmm. ancient artillery. And so you take the bow. You hold it in your hand. And I think I think what Joash needed to realize was that he was the steward of the promise. God told Israel, I promise you, Deuteronomy 1, you're going to go, or Deuteronomy, rather, and, and Joshua 1 as well. You're going to get all the land up to the Euphrates River. right? He's the steward of that thing as the king, as the leader. And Elisha is sort of the... I don't want to get too far in the weeds there, but Elisha's is a spiritual heart. It's sort of like you got the temple, then you build the wall later. You know, you got to build mm-hmm. the temple first. You got to yeah. build the wall around it. You got to have Elisha, you have to have the spiritual truth, and then you need to have somebody extending the borders to the promise, the fullness of the promise. And what's amazing about this is that Joash stops. If he had done that, then our Bible maps would have this wonderful hard line. They actually mm. got what God promised them. They would have actually gotten the land all the way to Euphrates river instead of what's disappointingly written in our Bible maps, you know, the area <laughs> underneath Solomon's economic control. Right? Yeah. They, never, they never actually got there. In Joshua chapter 1, God clearly tells them where your sole of your foot goes. They were supposed to walk. They were supposed to go get it. They were supposed to claim it. It was supposed to be conquest. And here is a window. I don't know if it was the last window. It turned out to be. Uh, this was the opportunity to do this thing, and Elisha gets that, and and Joash doesn't. Joash doesn't say, "I'm the steward of this promise." And the way the way I preach it is, Christ has clearly told us to go and teach all nations, and we say, "Well, we're going to do this. We're going to we're going to smite three times. We're going to support missionaries, and we're going to take short term trips, and we're going to do some things to try to help people." And that's not bad. I mean, it wasn't bad that they beat Syria three times. That was good. That was a great thing. But it's not stewarding the promise. It's not keeping that in your mind that God has me here to do this thing. And, and so how does it work out for missions? It works out for missions in, a, in many different ways. But one simple way is God has us to reach all nations. Hey, that guy looks like he's from a nation. And I'm consumed with that, right? Like hmm. I, I mean, me personally, but uh, we all can be consumed with that. Like, oh, I have an opportunity to take a business trip to, as, as uh, one of our church members did, to Hong Kong. Uh, Oh, I'm going to make use of that. I want to witness the people there. I want to be a testimony to people from that country because they're thinking I'm stewarding this command to go to all nations, the promise that he's with me always, even to the end of the age. So time's not up yet. And we take that seriously. I think, I think that's the lesson I get out of this. That's how I preach it anyway, is that we take seriously the promises that God's given us. And when we have the opportunity, we, that's our first impulse. I'm going to, I'm going to take that shot.
0: Yeah, I think, I'm um, going back to what Andy said about assuming, I, I have the assumption when I preach this passage that, that Joash understood the symbol. And it doesn't ever say explicitly that he understands the symbol, but there's a little detail. And again, when we're reading these stories, we want to pay attention to the details. It says um, that he, uh, sm- let's see here, uh, smite, um, he took the arrows, the man of God was wrong. Oh, uh Smite the ground, there we go, verse 18, and he smote thrice and stayed, and that word stayed means he stopped, and I kind of joked about it with my class, and I said, you know guys, it's kind of odd to end every action with, and then he stopped, right, like, we're recording a podcast right now. So it'd be weird if, if Brittany asked me about my day and I'm like, well, we were recording a podcast and then we stopped and then we went and we had our staff meeting and then we stopped right. like every action that you do ends with stopping. So why does it mention that he stopped? I ate my lunch by the way. And then I stopped.
1: <laughs> That's good. Andy.
0: Yeah. probably, probably. <laughs> Thanks, bad guys. If you were still eating your lunch. <laughs> um, but the point there is that the scripture is, is calling attention to this very decisive action. It was a decisive action. He made the choice to stop hitting mm-hmm. and he could have hit more. And I think, You know, going back to what you said, Matt, and we can apply this to missions. We can apply this into so many areas of our lives where God God gives us his promise and we believe him to a certain point and then we stop. And we ask for certain things and then we stop. And, you know, how often have we said, well, God, yeah, God could X, Y, Z, but he's not going to. And I'm not going to pray for it. I'm not going to hope for it. God's not really going to save my coworker. God's not really going to change that person. God's not really going to, I mean, you fill in the blank. And we just, we have a, a, we say certain things, right? You know, Joash comes in and he says, you know, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and the horsemen thereof, you know, the, we might put that today, you know, my father, my father, the tanks of Israel and the shells thereof. Like the idea is this is, this is where the military power is really coming from. It's coming from the Lord and the prophet of the Lord. And then right. the prophet of the Lord says, all right, blank check, ask for what you want. And he's too afraid to say, okay, wipe out Syria, my enemy, because, well, if, if I ask for that. I don't know.
1: That's, that may be a little bit it's much. Too big, yeah. Um, yeah, um, I agree. I I think that's part of his problem, is he thinks he's going to be embarrassed. The embarrassing thing is not trusting God. And we, how long is it going to take us to get that through our heads? It's not embarrassing to trust God for something, it's embarrassing eternally to, to not do that. And I think, you know, there, this is hard. I, I preach sometimes, uh, I'm not sure if this is the same Joe Ash sermon, but I say, um, there are things that God has promised us he can do that he won't do until we ask him. Mm -hmm. And an example is salvation. He, He can save everyone. He will save all those who call on him, but he won't do it until you ask him for it. Not every promise is like that, but some are, and there are things that can be that will not be unless we pray for them. That's really good. Just keeps bringing my
2: mind back to the verse unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. And that also assumes that we are going to ask or think about it. Yeah. yeah.
0: So as we wrap things up here, we've got these two kings. Uh, we've got one uh, who asks for God's help and receives it, but isn't willing to turn. We've got another one who asks for God's help, but again, is 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 afraid to really, really ask. And neither of these men turn from the sin of, of uh, Jeroboam. And I think when we look at these two, the connection there is, if you have an inadequate faith of God, if you have, it really comes down to your view of God, right? Neither of them have a big enough view of God. And if your God isn't strong enough to wipe out the Syrians, he's certainly not worth risking tearing down century-old sanctuaries that everybody loves and telling them, go down to our enemy in the south, to their capital city, and let's go worship there. And I think in our own lives, as we look at this, to realize My faith in God is crucially important because if I don't believe God, I'm not going to follow God because I'm not going to trust God. And at the end of the day here, these men don't really believe God because they don't have a big enough view of God, and that shows up in their actions and in their behaviors. So Agreed. Lord, help us avoid that. Yeah. Well, thank you for uh, joining us. We trust that this uh, podcast has been a blessing, and we look forward to seeing you next time as we continue through the kings of Israel and Judah. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast.